first thing that hit me was just kind of see you dead water is just kind of looming there and what a what a gigantic presence it is for the people of El Paso because you see it all the time um, almost as much as you see your own city you see the, the neighboring city of Ciudad Juarez. El Paso, Texas sits right across the Rio Grande from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Looking from above, the whole thing looks like one big city, ringed by dusty, jagged mountains and a seemingly endless desert. The main thing you notice, though, is the river snaking through, with the metal border fence alongside. On the south side of the border, Ciudad Juarez is home to nearly twice as many people as El Paso to the north, as well as a more dubious statistic, nearly 50 times as many murders last year. So I'm actually here at the U.S.-Mexico border right now. I visited the border on a swelteringly hot day in September. There are a couple of entry points not far from downtown. There's a bridge that spans over the river and the metal border fence, which hundreds of pedestrians are now crossing. There's also hundreds of vehicles lined up to come across from Mexico. This is the side where vehicles from Mexico come through into the U.S. This is my first time at the U.S.-Mexico border, and I have to say, for me at least, It's one of those places that I've seen on the news constantly, but yet, I still didn't really know what to expect. This is partly because you hear so many competing narratives about what the border is really like. But standing at the border, at least on the U.S. side, I was struck by how calm it all was. Before January of this year, thousands of migrants, mostly families with children, were pouring over the border every day. Not that they were jumping the fence. Immigration and customs enforcement were allowing migrants claiming asylum to come across the border to await their day in immigration court. But since January, those protocols have changed. But we'll get to that in due time. The reason I'm here is to attend a mass being held near the border, at a center that helps migrant farm workers. Bishop Brendan Cahill of Victoria, Texas celebrated the mass in Spanish. The main reason the bishops were visiting, apart from touring an aid center for migrants on the Mexican side, was to see the fields where migrant farm workers pick products like chilies and onions. Farm workers from Mexico who cross the border daily to work in fields in the U.S have been an accepted reality in this part of the country for years. Ever heard of Hatch Chilies? I didn't realize that they're actually called that because they're grown in Hatch, New Mexico, which is about an hour and a half drive from the border crossing. There were quite a few migrant farm workers in attendance at the mass who were eager to show off the chilies and onions they'd picked. After the mass ended, I caught up with Bishop Cahill, who talked about what he had seen in the migrant shelter in Mexico. The experience here of being on the border and listening to people's stories, and these are regular people, is the idea that family is always at the forefront. Then spiritually, I thought about this afterwards, because Pope John Paul II focused on praying for peace and praying for the family. 
And I think by that, he meant, like, I want to pray for my family, the Cahill family, but I also want to pray for the family unit that we protect, mothers and fathers and children, and that they can be together. And that's what I noticed here on the border, a lot of economic forces, a lot of things challenge keeping the family together. And you just see all the challenges children are facing today. And to say, uh, whatever we can do, this reminded me, this immigration same issue. It's really about the families. That they're, they're leaving places where they're unsafe, they're scared for their kids, trying to come here where they, they do feel safer here. And so, After uh, I thanked Bishop Cahill for talking to me, I went off to try and talk to someone else. But just a couple minutes later, he made a point of seeking me out again to offer an addendum to what he had said. These are baptized Christians. So I was saying from the faith perspective, that's what we forget sometimes because we're so focused on the, the charity part of it. These are our brothers and sisters. These are baptized Catholics. And so these are our brothers and sisters. So respecting national borders, respecting everything else, it still is there's a bond there by, by sacramentality. A lot of those refugee houses are getting filled up on the Mexico side. It's the immigration into the U.S. has slowed down a lot just in the last couple of weeks. This is Father Josh Mayer. He's a priest of the Diocese of Gallup, New Mexico, and a vocations director. He was invited to join the bishops on the visit to Mexico. On that Tuesday, we went to a place called, called Casa del Migrante, which is run by the diocese there in Juarez. By some estimates, about 20,000 and possibly as many as 50,000 migrants from all over the world are currently in Juarez with nowhere to stay homeless in one of the world's most dangerous cities. We crossed over the border, which for us was fairly easy. We were in, you know, a a tour bus. Right now what they're doing as they're responding to the shifts in what's happening at the border is they're, they're taking in primarily refugees, migrants from Central America and South America who are being sent back home. Father Josh has spent some time in Guatemala, so he was particularly interested in speaking to migrants who had come from there. Migrants in the city are from all over the world, but a lot have come from Central and South America. I talked to a family from Guatemala there uh, who were pretty agitated and frustrated because there's also some complications in Guatemala right now who they'll accept back into their country. Like Bishop Cahill, Father Josh was struck by the number of families coming to Juarez in search of stability for their children. Certainly people were coming from difficult and hard situations, uh, tough economic realities. And the phenomenon now that we have is forced migration, which is uh, families who do not want to leave their home country would prefer to stay. Gang activity or absolute poverty or government oppression in the case of some of those countries situation has become so hard to live in and their lives are so endangered that they need to leave a place that they don't want to leave, a place that they love, their family that they love. A lot of the migrants that you see now at the border are not people who ever wanted to leave their home. They didn't make a plan to come to the U.S. to make a better life for themselves. It's something that they chose to do often under duress, the most difficult and heartbreaking decision they've ever made. I also caught up with Bishop Seitz of El Paso. Last year, the diocese opened up a temporary shelter to offer basic necessities to the migrants coming into the city. Now, he's pretty open about the need to send aid across the border to help the migrants who are waiting in Mexico. 
I'll give you the kind of Sophie's choice that one mother expressed to us. So a mother with three young children, she said, I am going to go back to Guatemala. If I stay here, I'll probably die. But if I go back, I'll also probably die. But at least there, there'll be somebody to take care of my children. And I don't know anyone here. We are Catholic Christians and we're citizens. If the two ever come into conflict, we need to be Catholic Christians first. And we need to try to see things through the eyes of Jesus Christ and through the teachings of our church. And those teachings should be clear when they say that if we encounter someone in need, we need to do what we can to help them. I mentioned that the new ICE protocols have led to a drop in the number of migrants who are seeking asylum legally and making it across the border. This drop is well known to Catholics on the border who are helping out. The number of people that we were seeing uh, daily was uh, almost pretty close to uh, a thousand people daily. This is Sister Norma Pimentel. She's the director of Catholic Charities for the Rio Grande Valley in McAllen, Texas. These are families that were coming that enter our country and that uh, were asking for asylum and they were given permission to continue that process, that legal process, at their point of destination. And they came through us so that we can help them. The Humanitarian Respite Center, formerly housed in an old nursing home, was helping thousands of families get basic necessities after ICE dropped them off at the McAllen bus station every day. The new center in downtown McAllen, which Catholic Charities moved to this past June, is capable of serving 1,200 people at once. But right now, it's basically empty. 10 to maybe, uh, we might go up to 40 maybe at the most at, in some, okay, some days, but numbers are very few because most, if not all of the families that are coming into our country asking for protection for asylum, they are being turned back and said, wait in Mexico and uh, we'll give you a court uh, hearing where you can go before um, an immigration judge and state your your request. And so in the meantime, they wait in Mexico and this is what's happening now, which is so dramatic because all the families that are have suffered and fled their country and gone through so many weeks of travel and abuses throughout their journey and find themselves now uh, at the point of entry of Matamoros, Brownsville. And all of them, over 2,000 of them, maybe close to 3,000, just waiting there for months until they can have this hearing in the U.S. side, right across the border into the United States. And in the meantime, they're stranded there. They're homeless. And and it's uh, the most horrific uh, human suffering that we see. The new migrant protection protocols took effect in January, which require migrants seeking asylum to remain in Mexico rather than being allowed to come to the U.S. to await their asylum hearing. Despite the drop in migrants making it to McAllen, Sister Norma said volunteers still want to help, and the protocols have made it so that Catholics wanting to help migrant families have had to shift their tactics somewhat. We just have just fewer families arriving daily, and so we care for them, attend to their needs. We have so many donations coming in, and those donations are being distributed, asking volunteers and staff to go to the border in Matamoros, where these families are all uh, camping out. Whereas thousands of migrants used to show up in McAllen in need of aid, 
The main humanitarian need, she said, has shifted across the border. Whether it's food, like sandwiches and hygiene items, bags, and any specific items that can be helpful for them while they're waiting there. And so that's what we're doing. And and also, uh, one of the things that we're also uh, getting involved in is is making sure we help those who are providing legal assistance and, and explanation and workshops to the families to understand because they're going in to their hearings with no sense of knowledge what to expect is not there. So we are helping the attorneys and facilitating and bringing people on board that can assist in that way. It was was just this amazing campaign and such an amazing outpouring of love from the pro-life community. Among many Catholic pro-life groups, another group sending help to Sister Norma at the border is New Wave Feminists, a secular pro-life group. So the first time we went to the Humanitarian Respite Center, um, it was actually in a old dilapidated nursing home that they had bought and it was just, it was cramped. It was so tiny. This is Destiny Hernan de la Rosa, founder of New Wave Feminists. 20 people to a room and these rooms were not huge. Women and children laying on these little, you know, inch thick blue plastic mats to make sure that they didn't have lice or anything. They basically had to just have the bare minimum, these plastic mats. And I remember walking by one room and seeing two women laying on this one mat that you would, you know, see a child in a daycare sleeping on. And they each had two small infants with them. And and really, I mean, it's not like this is offering any comfort. It was just a little bit warmer than the floor. Then we started hearing about the other needs they had, that things like shoelaces were really important because ice takes away their shoelaces. So when you're at these centers, you see people kind of shuffling in just trying to keep their shoes on. Feminine hygiene care items and, you know, diapers and wipes and underwear, like like really just basic necessities that most of us take for granted. These are just families and their families trying to escape violence. And then I think also as a human family, especially to your listeners, people of faith, realizing how many of them are Catholics. One of the things that we donated this time was actually a bunch of rosaries because just like shoelaces, rosaries are confiscated since they can be used as a weapon. And I personally am not Catholic, but a lot of my Catholic friends, you know, kind of chuckled at that. Like, yeah, it's the ultimate weapon, but not in the way that ICE thinks it is. Of course, other Catholic groups are also sending aid to the border. The Knights of Columbus recently announced a donation to several of the border dioceses, and a delegation of Knights from El Paso even teamed up with the Knights from the Mexican side to deliver supplies to Casa de Migrante a few weeks ago. Many Catholics who are helping out with migrants to the border, as well as the U.S. Bishops' Conference, face questions from some parts of the Catholic world as to why they talk about migration so much. I get that question sometimes from when I speak, and, and 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 you know, I just don't understand if we believe in a God of love, a God who tells us that we must welcome the stranger, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. You know, Jesus was very specific in saying, look for me and you will find me in them, in those people who are hurting, in those people who are suffering. Just because something is legal or illegal, that doesn't equate it to morality. And we know that as pro-life people. We know that any violence against innocent human beings is not okay, no matter whether it's you know government mandated or not, whether it's legal or illegal. If we can 
love them as our neighbors. That's that's kind of what matters. We don't even really agree on the facts that are being reported on anymore. So it's so hard to tell from a distance what's going on. Everything is is uh, so heavily narrativized. We can agree that we have an immigration, a migration crisis. And, and then the question is just, how do you respond? And I think there's always an urgent response. What's called on you right now by the humans that are that are right in front of you, by your brothers and sisters who are in need? And then behind that, what's a more long-term response? How do, you, how do you address the roots of the problem? So there's triage work, urgent care. These people are bleeding and hungry right now. And then there's that deeper question of uh, how do you address not just the symptoms, not just bind up wounds, but how do you stop these wounds from happening? I think it's our responsibility to do something. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about a side of the immigration story that's not often covered. Stay tuned. Friends, listeners, Twitter fans of Carl Bunderson, this is Carl's best work friend, Peter Zalasko. I'm the social media manager and arbiter of all food arguments at CNA. What can I say? My opinions on food are always correct. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom in your car, during lunch, or on the run, be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And then force your friends to do it as well. Seriously, come on. Invite them. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just open the podcast app on your phone, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click on the subscribe button. That way, you'll get our podcasts as soon as we post them. Now, back to the show. And I'm going to go have some pie. Stability, especially for a family, and unity for a family, uh, are are the breeding ground for deeper vocational discovery, the ability to follow Jesus Christ and be encouraged by your families. As I mentioned, Father Josh is a vocations director. As we were talking about his experience at the migrant shelter in Mexico, he mentioned something that stuck with me, a side of the immigration debate that I personally hadn't really thought about before. One of the barriers to somebody following the call to say the priesthood when they're in an unstable migrant community is that one of their jobs when they come to the U.S. is to send money back home. And a lot of their family is depending on them. The way that they're surviving economically back in their home country would be through somebody who's working here in the U.S. And to choose to follow the Lord's call into the priesthood would be to choose to cut off most of those finances. There's always a sacrifice in following Jesus. He calls us to the sacrifice of the cross for our brothers and sisters, and also to joy. But when someone in that situation, who others are counting on, makes the sacrifice to enter into religious life or the priesthood, they're not making just their own sacrifice, they're sacrificing something for others. Of course, the barriers to vocational discernment for migrant families aren't just financial. There might be the language barrier, there might be also the immigration um, status barrier. They might need some help uh, regularizing their, their status in the country. This is Luis Soto. He works at the Augustine Institute in Denver, which produces educational Catholic materials in both English and Spanish. Basically, I am in charge of the creation of content in Spanish, as well as the distribution of this content. 
Luis was born in Mexico and emigrated to the U.S. to work for the Archdiocese of Denver when he was a young man. The, the vocation to the priesthood is tied to the family and is tied to, uh, to the youth ministry as well, to the youth and young adult ministry. In the last years, we have seen an increase in the number of Hispanic vocations, especially because of the work done in some of, of the dioceses with, with a significant Hispanic presence. But we still have long, long ways to go. Luis echoed what Father Josh said about how discerning vocations can take somewhat of a backseat when some families are just trying to keep their heads above water. I am a Hispanic immigrant and I was born and raised in Mexico and I love my Mexican heritage and I love the Mexican culture and the Mexican food and everything else. But I always say, I always, always say, before being Hispanic, I'm Catholic. And, and my first and most important identity is being a Catholic and being a child of God. So I think this, the importance of promoting vocations from all cultures and in a very particular way amongst Hispanics, it's essential not for Hispanic Catholics. It's important for the church and it's important for the Catholic church because of the significant growth that we are having um, among Hispanic Catholics in the United States. There is the challenge that we are in our Hispanic families, we are not speaking enough about the vocation to priesthood. And, and I think that's the heart of the matter here. We are a group of immigrants that immigrated in the second half of the 90s, in the first half of the 2000s. And we came to this country to prosper, to start a new life, to do many other things. And, and maybe in that, um, in that spirit and with the desire to succeed and to have a better life for our children, we forget the basic uh, importance of giving our children uh, the gift of faith or speaking about the, the, the importance of considering priesthood. It probably goes without saying that if a young man is in the United States illegally, diocesan seminaries can't take him. So, when faced with a language barrier, immigration barriers, and everything else, what can be done when a young migrant feels a call to the priesthood? Hello, this is Juan Vertiz, Father Juan Vertiz from Mexico City. Father Juan Vertiz is the rector of the Hispanic Seminary of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. Established in 1999, this seminary aims to fill that very need. So 20 years ago, Cardinal Norberto Rivera of our diocese saw the need for a house of um, formation so they could prepare themselves to uh, go to different dioceses of the United States and serve as priests. Basically, dioceses in the U.S. send young men to the Hispanic seminary who need help regularizing their immigration status or who need to learn Spanish, or in some cases, English, to be able to serve in their home diocese. We have some American seminarians that come and learn a little bit better their Spanish. Also, we have some seminarians that haven't been in the States but have a, like a missional vocation. So it's like an in-between uh, stage for them that helps them uh, discern better their vocation. Father Vertiz said a lot of the seminarians came from U.S. dioceses after migrating from places like Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. We have served many, many dioceses in these 20 years. I don't know, maybe 55 dioceses. Yakima in Washington State, Fresno, California, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Allentown, also in Pennsylvania, Orange, Orange in California, 
Amarillo, Texas. Some of the seminarians have to stay in Mexico for a couple of years before they can return to the U.S., but the support and sponsorship of the church can help them through the process. Most of our seminarians that come migrated to the States in search of a better life have great stories about their vocations because they lived here in Mexico or in Guatemala or in Honduras and they had a really tough time as, as children and as young men, most of all because of poverty. To learn more, I also spoke with another former vocations director, Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. We actually, um, this past June, had the ordination of one of these men in Mexico City, all in Spanish, which was uh, a bit of a challenge for me, but I've had a lot of practice with Spanish uh, throughout my priesthood. Like many dioceses in Texas, Tyler has a large Hispanic population and has a relationship with the Hispanic Seminary in Mexico. Bishop Strickland said dioceses may send seminarians there for a couple of reasons. As we tried to follow the, the law and, and take care of the immigration issues, we've had men that had immigration issues and we followed the steps for um, getting them a legal status and that worked out. We established this relationship with the seminary there in Mexico City, which a number of dioceses in the United States that find themselves in a similar situation. Sometimes it's not just the immigration issue, but also language issues that maybe they're just really not ready to study in a, an English-speaking seminary, but are you know interested in studying for an American diocese. Bishop Strickland ordained one of the seminarians a priest just a couple months ago. That priest is currently studying canon law and hopes to come back to the Diocese of Tyler to serve as a priest within a year. The other seminarian that Tyler sent is currently studying at the Pontifical North American College in Rome. He can, he can get into Italy, he just can't legally enter the United States yet. Bishop Strickland said it's good for young men who live in the diocese to have this option, should they feel a call to the priesthood. If young men come along that have the same needs immigration-wise and, and are not able to achieve a legal immigration status, then certainly we would welcome any of those that are in that situation. And like I said, uh, we would certainly be open to men who simply need it because of, of the language issues. They're ready to enter into formation, but it really needs to be in Spanish. Also bring him up to a, a status of being fully bilingual because we, that's what we really need in pretty much every community and every ministry in the diocese, like so many dioceses, we need bilingual men. I think that is a great uh, solution for many of the dioceses, especially when they are working with young um, guys who have uh, uh, some challenges with the immigration status um, and, and providing a good, solid opportunity of formation um, from Mexico, and at the same time, giving them the opportunity to regularize their immigration status and learn English and come back and serve the diocese, I think it's a great, great mission, the one of the Seminario of Guadalupe. As people listen to your podcast, I would certainly encourage them to pray for vocations wherever they are and pray for you know, young men to embrace the, the beautiful, challenging, but beautiful life of the Catholic priest. I, I would like to ask uh, for your prayers and, and the prayers of your audience 
as, as Catholics and uh, belonging to a nation, as Catholics, we have to be open to anyone and to understand and um, get to know these people. And you'll find great stories and great people behind those those stories. No, there are real people, real sons and daughters of God that need help. No, and we can do something for them. When I was growing up, I remember in my home diocese in in the state of Sonora in Mexico, we used to pray for vocations at the end of every single mass in the entire diocese. You should be praying for vocations and for the ministry with people of all cultures, in a particular way, the ministry to, to, to Hispanic Catholics, because that is important not to Hispanics, but that is important to the church. That is important to our mission as Catholics and our mission to go and, and make disciples. And um, I think that's, that, that's a key element when we are speaking about Hispanic ministry, we are not speaking about a Hispanic issue or a Hispanic need. We are speaking about the reality of the Catholic Church. The issue of immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border is not going to be solved overnight. Almost everyone I talked to strongly supported policies to address the root causes of migration so that families don't end up destitute and optionless south of the border. This story is far from over. Our families that are coming to the borders and the people that are coming are, are overwhelmingly incredible and even heroic people that are making sacrifices for their family and come from incredibly difficult realities, totally real suffering, and are trying to make a better life for themselves and even more than that for their families and when when they come the, so many of them when they get to Juarez or El Paso the first thing they do is they look for a church can you help me find a Catholic church so many of them know that that's where they can find a place of welcome and they, they can be fed and just be safe for a little while and not and not look at everyone around them with some sort of distrust because they're afraid of being taken advantage of so they're seeking help from their brothers and sisters in the faith and I think a lot of times people just haven't encountered their brothers and sisters, so they don't know them, so they hear news narratives uh, that gives them a, a, a general distrust. But stop distrusting people that you've never met before. Get to know them, break bread with them, hear their stories, and uh, cry with them and laugh with them, and, and then your heart will just go out to them. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency and was produced this week by Jonah McKeown and Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Father Josh and Father Vertiz, to Bishop Strickland, Sister Norma, to Destiny, to Luis, and also to our colleague David Ramos at Asi Prensa. Keep an eye out this week for the latest episode of CNA Editor's Desk, our companion podcast. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. Jonah McKeown.